Let's pray, guys. Lord, we just thank you so much for your grace, this incredible grace that has been lavished upon us because of what Jesus did. The work of Christ is unsearchable in its awesome reality and its awesome benefits and its awesome hope. And we just pray that we would be able to receive more and more understanding and and experience you more from that understanding because this is an experiential walk. It's not just theology. We thank you, Lord, that we can experience you in our inner man. The Spirit of God has been given not just to reveal things, but to cause us to feel things and to experience God, even emotionally experience God within with joy, unspeakable. We just thank you, Lord, that it... This reality is inside of us because you placed your spirit within us because we simply believed that your son took away our sin. So simple, yet so profound. We simply believed that your son took away our sin by his death. And because he was raised again, a new creation could begin, a new beginning. And the gift of the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon all those who believe. So awesome. Lord, now I pray that we would have insight by the Spirit of God of the things that you want to teach us. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are our teacher. We need no man teach us. John says, no man need teach us for the Spirit of God, the anointing of God is within each one of us. And you, Lord, lead us into all truth. For no man can teach the things of God. Only God can teach about God. Only the Spirit can teach about God. Who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? But the Spirit is given that, given that we might know these things and that we might have teachers in the body of Christ and that we might have revelation in the body of Christ, but it's all by the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of the Spirit. Amen. From time to time, um, you guys will send me like a text or an email or something and say, hey, I was talking to a friend of mine and we had, we had a great discussion about sanctification or about the grace of God or the new covenant. And, um, and you'll send a copy of what that person said in, their, in the text or in the email and say, this is what he said. What do you think about this? Or how would you respond to this? Or that kind of thing. Well, that happened this week. And I want to share the text that came to me from one of you guys. I want to say which one. Because I, I don't want to put any names on the tape. But, and I don't even know who this friend is that someone in the class sent me the text to. Some friend that he's sharing with and, you know, and trying to get them to see more and more about the, the finished work of Christ. But this text is very instructive, I think, because it what he says and how he views things. So I want to talk about a little bit what he says in the text. And then I also want to, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. But there's two main things he mentions in the text I think are very, very interesting. And I want to talk about that and we'll go from there. Okay, here we go. Here's the text. Okay, so, uh, here is something one of my friends sent me. 
Okay, and then here's a quote from his friend that he's been sharing the gospel with. At the end of the day, I don't disagree with you at all. What I'm calling sanctification, you are likely classifying as personal growth or inner life growth, etc. I have a classic use for the word with a classic understanding of sanctification. I completely agree that the Catholic, little c, Catholic meaning the church as a whole, has missed the point and focuses far too much on works, earned aspect of life, spirituality, etc., all of which are completely useless and needless. But with regards to the word sanctification, there is too much sound theology with a proper treatment of the word for me to dismiss the word altogether. It's what I was saying several texts back. This is a semantic problem and not one of doctrine or theology. Okay, that's the first point he makes. I want to talk about that. Secondly, he says, also, with regards to Christ in you as a as a metaphor, he mentioned that in a previous text, Christ in you as a metaphor. From a written and literary standpoint, it is absolutely a positional metaphor. I'm not suggesting that Christ is not in you, but that he is not limited to being in you, for he is omnipresent. Okay. Two things he points out here, um, his view of sanctification and the phrase Christ in you. Um, calling the phrase Christ in you a positional metaphor. But if you can see in this text, he kind of backtracks a little bit by saying, I'm not saying Christ is not in you. But what does he mean by that? Well, he means by that, that is as a positional metaphor, he's in you. And, of course, he also brings up the point that uh, God is omnipresent and he can be anywhere and everywhere, which we never said he couldn't. Um, You'd be, sometimes when you'd be discussing things with people, they'll set up these straw men. They call straw men something that you don't believe or don't, didn't say, and they'll knock down the straw men as if they were making an argument. But it's just it's a straw man that they set up. Like, and besides, God, God is not limited to just being in you. He can be everywhere. Like, well, duh. You know, so just be aware that sometimes that happens in discussions that straw men's, a straw man will be set up by the other person and they'll knock it down as if they accomplished something, but they really didn't say anything and didn't contradict anything that you said. Okay, let's look at this sanctification, really. First thing. He says the, he, that he, he says that the, at the end of the day, I agree with everything you've been saying because obviously they've been having a lot of discussions about sanctification back and forth. I think you'll find sometimes this will happen at the end of a, a lot of discussion with people about the gospel because you'll have so much compelling things to say from the scripture that what they'll end up sometimes saying to you is that we're saying the same thing because they can't refute what you're saying. It's clearly from the scripture. So many times you'll have someone simply say, you know, at the end of the day, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. We're saying the same thing. I think it's just semantics. It's not just semantics. And this is why, because classic, the view of uh, classic... The view of classic, uh, she's looking for the children's class, I think. They'll find. Um, the view of, of classic sanctification is basically, um, is basically the, the view that's out there now that says that, you know, you're not, you don't have a new heart. God is working on the new heart for you as a believer. God is making you prog- progressively more and more holy. Remember the word sanctification just is another word for holy, being set apart or holy. Um, the, the real essence of the word 
holy. Our sanctification is really other, meaning you're set apart as other than what is common. It's other. It's special. God is holy. God is other than man. He has made us other in himself. So the classic view of, of sanctification is not what we're teaching, not what we're believing, not what we're seeing in the scripture at all, because it, it basically is the view of a progressive growth into holiness until God is somehow satisfied with the growth. And of course, where that line is, who knows? And at the, at the end of your life, um, somehow you, every, any gaps that need to be filled in are filled in. Of course, the Roman, Roman Catholics believe that at the end of your life, all the gaps are taken care of in purgatory. There, it's really often in, the, in the theology of the finished work of Christ in terms of God working on you and, and, um, and then if it's not finished, then you go to purgatory for a while and who knows how long before you're purged and then you can enter heaven. Whereas the Protestants believe more of a purgatory on earth where God's purging you now, making you progressively holier and then somehow it's all forgiven at death and, and you know, if it's not finished, we'll take you anyway. I don't know. But it's, when you think it through, that's, that's the pro- a real problem with that. You know, it's a real problem with how, at what point are you holy enough to, be, to enter heaven? So, and to say it, I, I have the classic view of sanctification, um, that's like saying before Luther, before Luther, before the Reformation, before the Protestants came forth with the revelation of justification by faith, that's like saying... And, and it was true. For hundreds of years, the church taught that we were justified by grace, by the grace of God, through faith, plus good works. Lots of good works. And the, and the main emphasis was on the good works. So the Roman Catholic Church, before Luther, taught justification was by grace, through faith, plus lots of good works, lots of prayers, lots of Hail Marys, lots of Our Fathers, lots of Mass, lots of, you know, whatever good deeds to fill up, you know, what's lacking in your righteousness so you can hopefully miss purgatory and that kind of thing, okay? So you could have said before Luther for hundreds of years that I hold a classic view of justification. And that's what he's saying here. We are, I believe, I think Clark is right on, we are in a place of another reformation, a second reformation. For him to say... I hold the classic view of sanctification is like saying before Luther, I hold the classic view of justification. The point is, just because you hold something that's classic doesn't mean it's right. (laughs) Classic just means it's what's been told for hundreds of years. Classic. And I would say it's classically wrong. You know, don't let that, don't let that, make you back down because someone says, I hold the classic view of sanctification. Well, take another look at it because that's what they said before Luther about justification. So anyway, all right. So what we believe, what we teach here about sanctification is, and he's noticed in the text, he said, he says, I think we're saying the same thing. What you're referring to is your inner growth and growth in the, in life and in that kind of thing. And it's true. There's growth and there's fruit, but it's growth, like we talked about the orange tree, it's growth from a rest, from an act of creation that is already holy, blameless, sanctified, justified in union with Christ. For Christ has been made unto me wisdom and justification and sanctification and redemption, all those things, all done 
And the growth is a process of the renewal of the mind and the manifestation of what is within gradually as we bear more and more fruit. So it is about a matter of growth, but not as he perceives it. So that's how I would answer that text. I would say, you know, um, contrary to the classic view of sanctification, what we're seeing emerge in the church now is a clear revelation of a new creation of a spiritual circumcision that has taken place whereby God has literally separated the inner man from the outer man and left the power of sin in our mortal body so that we could be raised from the dead for we once were in our flesh joined to our bodies as a fallen person dead in our trespasses not dead to God in terms of being in union with him without spiritual life and in our flesh and what God did was he raised us from the dead because we simply believed and called into being that which did not exist before, an act of creation separating the inner man from the outer man, leaving the power of sin resident in our mortal flesh, our mortal body. And, and from that place of union and new creation, the mind is renewed as the mind is set on the spirit and not the flesh. We don't look back to the flesh to try to fix ourselves and clean up ourselves and confess all the sins in the flesh so we can stay right with God and stay in fellowship with God, which is unscriptural. But we, our mind is set on the spirit, which is life and peace. In fact, the apostles said to fix your minds on Jesus, fix it on Jesus, not on the flesh. The scripture says, the apostle says, set your mind on things above, not things on earth. Don't even look back as if you still lived in the earth. Paul said, why do you live as if you're still in the world? No, you're not. You have already died. And what I shared last Sunday, I didn't really elaborate, but by definition, the old man has died the moment you and I were born again. You can't, God didn't say I'm, that I'm going to, you must be born again. And you're going to have two people inside of you. No, born again. He didn't say there's going to be another one born within you where you're going to have the old man and the new man fighting each other. No, born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when, when this happened, this miracle of new creation happened, the old man ceased to exist the moment we were raised from the dead. Because by definition, the old man is this. The old man is the inner person, soul and spirit, the inner person, soul and spirit, who is dead to God, in sin, unforgiven, uncircumcised, in the flesh, joined to the flesh, in sin, okay, that's the old man. The moment the inner person is cut away from the flesh and is no longer joined to the body, to the flesh, that old man, by definition, ceases to exist. There's not another person in there except there's only one person to work with. You see that? There's only one person to work with. There's one person. It's either going to be in the flesh or in the spirit. And it's going to be either born once or born again. See? So by definition, your old man is gone. It, it doesn't exist. And that's what Paul says. Don't you not that you've already died? Your old man died. It was crucified. Now, the power of sin, this is where we get messed up. The power of sin is still in the flesh, still in the body, in, the, in our members, Paul said. A power that works against the mind, the new mind of Christ. And that's why Paul says, walk in the spirit and you won't be, fulfill the lust of the flesh because that's the deeds of the old man. The spirit will put to death the deeds of the old man, but not the old man himself because he's gone. The, entity, the identity is gone. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly right. Baptism is the outward picture of what has happened inwardly, and that's why water is used, because water, being immersed in the water is a picture of two things. It's a picture of dying, because you can't breathe underwater. It's a picture of burial, death and burial. It's also a picture of cleansing. Water cleanses. So it's ex- that's exactly right. Baptism is a picture of... Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Because what we do when we, when we believe and we take that step to publicly confess Jesus before men in baptism, it's a symbolic picture of what already has occurred, but it's powerful. And it's something I, I strongly recommend because right after I got baptized in the water, um, within a few weeks, I, got, I had this vision of you know, me being dead on the cross, me on the cross, an open vision. It scared me to death because I was like looking and I saw myself on the cross. I saw Jesus. It was at a church. And I saw Jesus in, on the cross. And Jesus turned to me with my, the jeans and shirt I had on. And I said, and I, my eyes went like this. And I, I was getting nervous. I was like, I'm seeing things. It scared me. And I, I stood up, like, shocked. And, and then it disappeared. went back to Jesus on the cross. And that was right after I was water baptized. And I think with the Spirit, I was, when I was a very young Christian, and I had no idea what the Spirit was trying to show me. But I, now I know he was showing me you were crucified with Christ. I was crucified with Christ. It was like, oh, my God. So there's, very, there's awesome blessing tied to following the Lord's call to be baptized in water because it releases things in us. And it also is a testimony to everybody, and it's a, it's a good thing. Not necessary for salvation, you know, I'm not saying that. Paul says, God didn't send me to baptize, God sent me to preach the gospel. Well, you think Paul's going to go out and preach the gospel if baptism was needed to save all these people he's preaching to? He'd be baptizing everybody. So he would never make a statement like that, that God did not send me to baptize, he sent me to preach the gospel. That, to me, is one of the most powerful statements that baptism is not necessary for your salvation, but it's a powerful tool or, or gift that God has given us to release things in the Spirit to us, just like the bread and the wine. You don't have to take communion to go to heaven, but there's an awesome release of revelation as we take the bread and drink the wine and remember him in the covenant. Same thing. It's like it's a, it releases spiritual things and gifts and understandings as we just simply do these things. And, of course, the thief on the cross didn't have time to get baptized. And, he, and Jesus himself said, he's with me. So it's just one of those things. But that's, that's a very good comment about the baptism. That's what it is. Water baptism is, baptism is a picture of this great mystery of death and resurrection. But the, um, we were talking about the, uh, yeah, the new creation. The, being separated from this body of flesh, the old man ceases to exist. Now, we hear people talk about the dying of to die daily, the reference die daily, we're to die daily as a believer. The dying daily of the believer has nothing to do with sin, has nothing to do with the flesh. It's a reference to the new man being rejected by this world. Jesus said, I pick up my, I took, I take up my cross. If I, if I'm given, if I'm going to get, be given a cross, you too will be given a cross. In other words, I'm going to be rejected by this world and you too will be rejected by this world. As I took up my cross and didn't give it, didn't give it back to them, in other words, he, he, he allowed them to reject him. He allowed them to crucify him. He allowed evil to do its best. In the same way, we as believers don't give a cross back and reject those who are rejecting us. We don't retaliate evil for evil. We take up our cross. We take up the same rejection he had. We suffer his reproach outside the camp just as he did. 
But it's not about sin or the flesh. It's all about the new man. The new man gets the cross. Jesus was without sin, and he got the cross. It wasn't that God didn't, the Father didn't give Jesus a cross to help him with his sin problem. He wasn't talking about, you know, the Son of God wasn't talking about the, such hostility from sinners that he received as a result of him working out his salvation or working out his righteousness. No, it's a perfect Son of God who got the cross, who got the hostility from sinners. And he turns to his disciples and says, if they rejected me, they'll reject you. But if they accepted me, they'll also accept you. In other words, you'll have some that will love you and accept you because you're of me, and you'll have those, some who will reject you because of me. But if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? It simply means if you love this world more than him, if you want the praise of men more than the praise of God, how can you follow him? How can you believe? How can you be his disciple? And that's all it means. Isn't that awesome? So don't make this thing, I die daily, the phrase Paul uses in one of his letters. In context, he's talking about how he he was in threat of his life. The Jewish brothers, the legalistic Jewish brothers, had plotted to kill him. They had, uh, he referred to some of them as the wild beast of Ephesus, trying to kill him. He goes, I die daily. We we are like sheep led to the slaughter all the day long. That's another phrase. means the same thing. We are like sheep led to the slaughter all the day long. We die daily. In this world that rejects the Christ has also rejected us. And that's all that means. But you'll have people that don't understand the gospel take those phrases and put this heavy-duty burden on you to die daily to your sin and die daily. No, we live daily. That's the gospel. We died once, never to die again. Now we are ever alive, Romans 6 says. Even as he died once, never to die again, even so consider yourself as having died once and now alive with him, ever alive unto God. We overcome sin not by dying, but by living. We are saved, we are reconciled, the scripture says, by his death, but we're saved by his life. See, in union with him, we have the life of Christ in us that manifests. It is the life that puts to death the deeds of the flesh. It is the life that brings us into his power. It is the life that bears the fruit of the tree, the the new tree of life. See? It's so cool. So it's all about life now in him. It It was about death for a brief moment. For a brief moment, it was. He died for us, but never to die again. And when we believe, we actually enter into that great mystery of death and resurrection. God's focus, not on the flesh, like Hazel Hazel said last Sunday. You know, circumcision, one part remains and one part is tossed out. We don't focus on what's been tossed out. The flesh has been cut away. God focuses on what what remains, the life. And that's why it's circumcision, because that's where the seed of life comes through man. Life. Life. That's what remains. That's what God's after, is a revelation of life and who he is and who we are in him. It's so awesome. Okay, so, um, so anyway, that's, that's how I would answer that text about the sanctification thing. That, that it, um, Just to say something is classic just means it, it's, it's a view that's been held for a long, long time. And, and uh, it may be right, and it may not be right, but it doesn't add anything to the discussion whatsoever. You have to look at the Scripture and see what the Scripture is really saying. Okay, second thing he talks about is Christ in you. Is He says Christ in you, the phrase Christ in you in this text is a positional metaphor. The word metaphor means something that is um, used as a symbol of something else, but it's not, it's not actually the item. In fact, I looked it up. Who can look up metaphor? It, can you Google, this, Google the word metaphor so I can get the exact wording of metaphor? Um, positional Positional just means it's a theological term that is not found in the scripture, but it's, it's a theological term that basically means that not actually, 
but judicially or um, it's, it's, uh, it's true but, uh, from God's perspective. It's more of a, what theologians call a standing issue. You're standing before God. Your position before God. It's, a, it's not an actual reality. It's more of a fictional, a legal fiction kind of thing. It's like, this is true, but, oh, good, thanks. Can, can you read it for me? That, yeah, just, or anybody. Okay. A metaphor is a literary figure of speech that describes a subject by asserting that it is, on some point of comparison, the same as another otherwise unrelated object. Right. Okay, figure of spe- a figure of speech... A type of analogy, not an actual reality, but a metaphor for something else. You know, we use metaphors all the time, comparing things. Um, so, so this brother thinks that, and I do believe he's, he's a brother, by the way. There's no question he's a brother, in my opinion. I think he's a brother. But um, you can be a brother and be in Galatianism and, and other isms that are not scriptural. Um, so what he's saying is that being in Christ, being in Christ is a positional metaphor. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a true statement of a standing that you have before God being in Christ, but it's not actual. It's not real. It's not real. It's, it's, what this does, saints, is that it, when, you see, when you don't see that you're actually, actually in Christ, joined to him, and he leaves out the other side of the equation. He doesn't mention the other side of the equation because it's not just being in Christ. Christ is in you. The scripture is clear that we are in him and he is in us. So if you believe that being in him is a positional metaphor, then you must also believe that him being in you is a positional metaphor. In other words, it's not real. Which, when you take a position like this and it's widespread in the church, you take the supernatural out of Christianity. You take the supernatural out of Christianity. If the Spirit of God is not really tabernacling, tabernacling inside this body, if my body is not really the temple of the Holy Presence, then all we have is really mental gymnastics. I am still in my flesh trying to work on getting to, to become a better person. God is out there, and I'm down here. And union is just a fiction. But that is not what the apostles taught. They were very direct in their words, and they said it hundreds of times. You are in him, and he is in you. In fact, the, uh, the very entrance of the Spirit into the world was done in such a, such a way by God to accent that this is experiential. Pentecost came with such power that they heard with their ears the sound of a roaring, mighty wind. They heard experientially. They saw with their eyes fire appear upon their heads and disappear within their bodies. They experienced a sense of drunkenness as if they had drunk wine because of the joy they felt. They expressed out of their mouths things from the Spirit, words and and languages they never learned, and proclaimed the goodness and the greatness of God and what God had just accomplished was awesome. That's what they were speaking. This is experiential. I mean, this is, a, this is what, the, I mean, Peter walked in his shadow would heal the sick. You don't heal the sick by your shadow because you have your doctrine right. You heal the sick with your shadow because there's a substance within your body, a presence within your body. You don't lay hands on the sick and heal the sick in his name because of your theology. 
God says lay hands on the sick because there's something in your body. There's a presence in your body. There's something that's coming out. Jesus walks among the crowds and he felt virtue leave his body. This presence, the presence. And like Russ said last night, listen, Russ said, listen, the God of the universe, experientially, the word became flesh among us, not just a positional metaphor. He was in the flesh, God himself in all of his fullness, walking with us. It almost goes to the first John passages that say, they who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist. See, it's experiential. God came in the flesh. I can say the same thing about the Christian. They who say that God is not really literally in your flesh, in your body, is bordering on this anti-Christ thinking. Because they're denying the mystical element of the Christian life. You remove the mystical element, the wonderful element, the sense of mystery about the work of Christ, and you remove the God of the supernatural. And that's who we live in, in Him. He lives in us. It's awesome. It's, it's, and, and we are mystical in the good sense of the word. We're not mystical. We're not mystics emotionally. We are mystics spiritually. We're mystics scripturally. We are scriptural mystics. The very moment you tell me that you talk to God, God talks to you, you get revelation from the Spirit, and He leads you, you are a mystic. I mean, if you say you're led by the Spirit of God, then you are a mystic in the good sense of the word. Religion has made that word a fearful thing. Oh, no, no, don't talk about the mystics. Because they're all the weirdness of the mystics who sought union with God, like Madame Guyon, who thought this, you know, this place of, this place of ultimate union was the goal that somehow you lose yourself in God and, and there's no longer an I and thou, but there's only a one being, you know, the nirvana. I lose myself in the, the all of all. And, ah. You know, it's all emotional. It's all this journey of seeking this union. No, we have it now. The babe in Christ has union with God in Christ. The babe in Christ immediately is in him. For it is of God that you were placed in him and he in you. For we were all baptized by one spirit into Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and made to drink of one spirit. See, union is not a goal to achieve. Union is a gift to receive from God the moment we are born again. Then there's a growth of awareness of this union, a growth of, of, oh my gosh, this is awesome, as we bear fruit in this place of rest and union. So we are mystics, and, uh, and we are people of the supernatural and people of the spirit. We are, but it's a scriptural mystic. It's a spiritual mystic and not an emotional, just an emotional mystic or a misguided mysticism that says you can reach God in many different ways and some, you know, th- through experiences you can find oneness with God. You know, that's... What, not what we're talking about. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I, w- I would... You talk about boring. If the Christian life was all about theology, but he wasn't really in me, and I wasn't... He, if he really wasn't where I am, and if I really wasn't where he is, which was his heart, that was the crowning work of his, of his work. His, his heart was, I go to prepare a place for you that you may be where I am. And that's not after death. That's now. For when the Spirit comes, he says, my Father and I shall make our abode within you. You and me and I and you. And he defined this union in John 17 when he said, Father, I pray that as you are in me and I am in you, in the same way that I am in you, Father, and you are in me, which is not a positional (coughs) metaphor, 
He was not positionally, metaphorically in the Father. And the Father was not positionally, metaphorically in the Son. They were one. The Word became flesh. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he prayed, as we are one, Father, I and you, and you and me, I pray that all who believe on me would be one like we are one. I in them, they in me. I in you, Father, and you in me. One, just the same way. Awesome. That's what brings joy. That was, that's what brings the, the power of the gospel. Paul talked about this kind of thinking. He said, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They have a form of godliness. They talk about godliness. They talk about God. They have a form of it, but they deny the power of it. And these two views kind of go hand in hand. If you don't see the new creation, you also don't see the reality of union and the presence within. If you don't see spiritual circumcision as a, not just, a, not just as a metaphor that it cut away our flesh, but a reality, then you also don't see the new creation or the, or the presence or the union that we have in Christ. Does that make sense? So I love answering these kind of questions and responding because you see where people are thinking. And um, it really helps, I think, calibrate our thinking, you know, calibrate what's out there and what we're saying because it's not, we're not just, it's not just semantics. It's not just, we're not just saying uh, the same thing, but it's a huge, huge difference um, of helping believers see. And again, it's not that they're not believers, but they, they are, in my opinion, living way below what God wants to reveal to them and, and live through them in power and the joy that they had maybe when they first believed will come when we see this reality. Is it hot in here to you guys? It's just me. <laughs> it's the body, can't take it. So anyway, remember saints, let's, let's just close here and just remember that theologians talk in terms of standing and state. And they say that your standing is a positional metaphor and that's who you are, righteous as a, you know, as a uh, position before God. But your state is something altogether different and God's working on you to make you more holy and make you more sanctified and so forth. Paul never separated standing and state. It was the same. The standing and the state was the same. Old Testament states, Old Testament saints, yes. They had standing and not state. They had standing and not state. They were reckoned righteous by their faith, but they descended to Sheol because the work had not yet been done on earth. The new creation could not come yet until Christ was offered. He must have the preeminence in all things. He must be the first one from the dead. He must do it first. He must be first. And they had to wait for what was promised to us that they would not be perfect without us, Hebrews says. So they had standing but no state, but they descended in a place called Abraham's bosom and protected because of their faith. We have both standing and state because a new creation has come. And all these witnesses and cloud of witnesses say, go for it, man. We did it, and we didn't even know half of what you know. We saw it afar off. But you have it. Yeah, Russ? The sheep 
follow the shepherd because they know his voice. Yes. And a stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from the stranger because they do not know the voice of strangers. It's pretty experiential. They know my voice. You take you take the experiential aspect of Christianity out of the out of the scriptures and you have death. You have nothing but letter and theology and doctrine and death and not a God who speaks. God says to the in the Old Testament, he said, These idols, these dumb idols, that's the phrase that Paul uses when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He goes, We don't worship we don't worship these dumb idols, meaning not stupid, but dumb they can't speak. We don't worship dumb idols that can't speak. We worship a God who can speak. God is not like an idol who can't speak and can't see and can't talk and can't walk. No, God is a living God. And he speaks experientially. He wants to communicate to his bride and talk to her, nourish her, comfort her, speak to her, reveal things to her, walk with her. That's God's heart and that's who he is. God is spirit. We're not the God of the book. I mean, we're not the people of the book, as they say. We're the people of the book. No, we're not the people of the book. We're the people of the God of the book. Because God is not a book. God is a spirit, the scripture says. Jesus said God is spirit. God is not a book. And so in this book is awesome revelation of the Christ. As Jesus said, search these scriptures. You Pharisees, search these scriptures. And you think that in these words you have life. You think in these scriptures you have life. But they speak of me, Jesus said. And you won't come to me that you might have true life. Because the book is a means to an end. It's a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, which means it's a means to an end. It's a leading us to a place, a destination. It's leading us to him. Yes. He is the place, the secret place of the most high. Awesome. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see these things. Help us speak with wisdom. Even as Stephen spoke with wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they could not resist his words. Help us speak with power. And with the Spirit of God that, that men might see, that other believers might see and understand that you are a God who lives and speaks. You're not the God of the dead, as you said. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of the living, not of the dead. Thank you, Lord, for this reality. Amen.